Well, <clears throat> this is my 61st, 61st sermon in the Gospel of John. Um, we've been somewhat sporadic in making our way through the Gospel, so it's been a little bit of time. But the same thing keeps bubbling up into my consciousness as we study the book. It makes me think, and I've probably said this to you along the way somewhere, but it, it makes me think of an intervention. You guys know what an intervention is, right? Uh, some of you may have participated in these. It's when family and friends are very concerned about someone they love who uh, has fallen into some habit that is self-destructive and they, they confront the individual in hopes of trying to change that pattern of behavior. And as I study the Gospel of John, I realize that <laughs> you know, Christ coming is a cosmic intervention. It's a divine intervention, right? Into the world to save His people. It's what God is doing um, as we see in the Gospels. He's coming to get us off sin. He's coming to get us off that self-destructive behavior that we're all so eager to give ourselves to. He's come to get us off. One theologian called sin unvarnished insanity. And I think maybe that's my favorite um, definition of sin. Unvarnished insanity. Because if you take all of truth into consideration, it is... Utterly insane to rebel against your Creator, right? I mean, is there a more insane thing a creature could do than rebel against his Maker, his Creator, his God? It is insane. Another theologian said, it's a suicidal chase, right? A friend of mine in college, he worked with racing dogs. Um, and you know how they get the dogs to run, right? You guys know? They're chasing a little mechanical rabbit. His name is Rusty. And so the dogs, are, the greyhounds are chasing Rusty. They, they think they want Rusty. They think Rusty is going to make it happen for them, man. They think Rusty is going to be the thing they really want more than anything else. Well, you know what happens when a dog finally catches Rusty. If it ever happens, you know, you know what the score is, right? That dog will never run again. He knows, you know, the jig is up. I'm not running after, you know, a piece of metal. I'm not doing it. You know, we're just like those dogs. If you're chasing something, something in the world and you think you want it more than anything else, right? The best thing that really can happen for, for us is to maybe that God would grant that we would catch up to it because you know what we find out every single time? And I know you young people think, well, you know, it's going to be graduation, then it's going to be career, then it's going to be, then it's going to be the marriage maybe, and then it's going to be the children, and, and then it's going to be something else, and then it's my first million. And then, listen, when you catch it, you realize there's no satisfaction in it apart from Christ. There's no deep, abiding, lasting, fulfilling, completing satisfaction in anything worldly apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So if the dog ever catches Rusty, he's ruined. <laughs> you know, and this is what Jesus is, he's trying to ruin you from sin. 
This is God's intervention. That you would be ruined for sin. It's uh, Charles Spurgeon, that great 19th century English preacher said, of the true Christian, he said, we are spoiled for this world. We're not going to run in a circle for no reason anymore. We're not going to do it. We have found the One who fills our hearts and our souls. So the Gospel of John is to me, it's like one big intervention. God has come to get us off our self-destructive behavior, to save us from our insane appetite for sin. And I don't, I don't know what lie you may be chasing. Um, we've got a small group in here, but I mean, there's probably any number of lies that some of us are chasing. Jesus has come to get us off the lie. To get us off the lie. He's like, here's what He's like in the Gospel of John. <laughs> Jesus, He's like a divine earthquake, right? I had another friend in seminary. He, he was from California. And he said, have you ever felt the earth move under you? How many of you felt this? Have you been in a strong earthquake? He says it kind of changes your perspective on everything. You know, if you're a thinking person. You know, once you feel the, the thing you believe is immovable move, once you feel it, you realize that you may have been deceived. He said it had a profound effect on him. So Jesus didn't come to offer platitudes and self-help and even a little religion. He came to get you off sin. He came... Uh, like a divine earthquake, this is an intervention that you would be who you were created to be and do what God has called you to do. To intervene. He's come to intervene, to interfere, to get involved, to intrude. He's done this that we might have abundant life. I was thinking about Randy Alcorn's a famous uh, minister and the author, Christian author in the U.S. I'll never forget what he says. Jesus has come to give us life, you know. And he he says this. He says, "If we listen to Christ, we will never be the same again." Amen. Now, some of you know that's true, right? Some of you know him. You love him, and it's never going to be the same. You know, you can't settle anymore. You can't live small anymore. God is real. He's awesome. And you know, as we studied a couple of weeks ago, he's my friend. He calls me a friend. So Alcorn says, man, if you listen to Jesus, we will never be the same again, nor will we ever want to be. Amen? Man, you're not going to get me to chase empty stuff anymore. I found out why I've been created. I found out who this is about. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. So let me set the stage for those of you who are visiting the context here. We've been making our way through this farewell sermon of Jesus. Um, John 13, 14, 15, and 16. This is the night before the cross. Jesus will be dead within hours. And He's got this farewell sermon that He's presenting to the eleven. Judas has been dismissed and Judas is on his way to betray the Lord. So during this this uh, discourse, 13, 14, and 15, Jesus has been both warning His men and encouraging His men. Uh, for every warning that He's given to them, 
He's made a promise, and I'm just going to give you a few. I stole this from John MacArthur. I love this. In the world, you will have trouble, but I will give you peace. In the world, you will have sorrow, but I give you my joy. In the world, you will have an adversary, but you are my friends. In the world, you will be hated, but I have loved you. In the world, you will be persecuted, but I will be with you. And in our text tonight, Jesus will tell them that they, some of them will be killed for their testimony. Right? We've talked about this the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Real Christianity is not a run through the park with a bouquet of balloons, right? If, if uh, we know our Bibles and we know biblical history and we've been a Christian for any number of years, we, we know He's not invited us to a, an amusement park ride. That's not what Christianity is. Jesus tells His men tonight, they will kill you. He told them last week, they will hate you, they will persecute you, they will kill you. This is what Jesus is saying to His men. But the implication here, the overriding implication is <laughs> they will kill you, but I give you eternal life. Amen? So for every negative... There's a huge upside, right? There's a, there's a God positive. For every negative that happens in, in this fallen world, there's a God positive. Man, this is a powerful you know, portion of Scripture. These four or five chapters here. So also in our text tonight, Jesus will begin to teach His men about the Holy Spirit. If you go back to John 14, He's already told them this about the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, The Father will give you a Helper. John 14, 16, and 17. The Holy Spirit will be uh, with you forever. He will indwell you. John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth and will teach you all things. It made me stop and think how committed God is to His people. So how committed is God to His people? What's going to happen to Jesus in a matter of hours? How committed is Jesus? How committed is the second member of the Trinity to your salvation? How committed is He to it? Well, we know what's going to happen in a matter of hours. He's going to be nailed to the tree and He's going to bleed out for you, right? How committed is the third member of the Trinity to your salvation and ultimate joy? How committed is He? Oh, He's going to take up residence in you. You know, if you get the, if, if you get the Bible's full picture of salvation, the Father elects the Son redeems and the Spirit regenerates and enables. It's a, power thing, a powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Listen, you have all you need. Don't ever complain that you don't have exactly what you need to be what Jesus has called you to be in the world. You have everything you need. Everything you need. If you're not a fearless Christian in the world, that's on you. It's not on God. That's on you. God's giving you more than you need. Who would have ever presumed to ask, Lord, oh, I want to be indwelled by the third member of the Trinity. Who would have ever asked for that? Well, who would have ever asked, oh, I want the second member of the Trinity to die for me. Who would have ever asked for that? No man would ever ask for this. God just does it. God just gives it. God just gives His Son. God just gives the Spirit. And you say you can't count your blessings. I want to say, 
if that's true of you, you and you call yourself a Christian, you've got a lot of work to do. I was sharing with someone earlier, you know, the first thing I do when a problem hits me <laughs> is I start preaching theology to myself. I had a little issue come up this week and, and it just, you know you, you know, you have these things that come out of the blue and it just kind of like, you just go, wow, if this, if this comes to, to, to complete fruition, I'm in big trouble. And I didn't know for a while what, which way it was going to go. I, I didn't know. You know what I started doing? I just started preaching theology to myself. I've told you this many times. You just start preaching theology to yourself. Well, how big is this problem, Jim? Well, in light of you know, eternity, it's not that big. <laughs> in light of the fact that God has loved me like He's loved me, it's really not that big. My biggest problems have been taken care of because of God's commitment to me. So that's how committed He is to us, beloved. Let's pick up here verse 26 of John 15. When the Helper comes, whom uh, I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of Me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with Me from the beginning. Jesus has been telling the guys that it's going to be hard to be known as His disciples. It's going to, what He's calling them to do is going to cost. It's going to be risky. And it's going to be hard. We touched on this last week. You may remember Matthew 10, 16-20. God's Word says, Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, but do not be anxious about what you will speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit uh, of your Father who speaks in you. Jesus says the Helper will come, the Holy Spirit is coming, and will empower and enable you and instruct you on how you are to witness in the world. Hey, you're not out there by yourself, right? You, you have the Word of God. And God willing, it's in your heart and it's in your mind. You know, just go out there and share the truth. It's really a no-pressure situation. You don't have to save anybody. If you think you have to save somebody, well, you're all messed up and you're never going to witness because you'll fail. Because you can't save anybody. But what you can do is you can sow good seed. You know, you can scatter the truth and let God save. Because God is the only one who can save. It's God's business. It's not your business. It's not my business. We just sow truth and God does what He does. You have no pressure. Do you understand you have no pressure in witnessing? You have no pressure. Some of you think, I can't, there's too much pressure. You have no pressure. <laughs> Satan's lied to you. You have no pressure. You just sow the truth. Some people will hate it. Some people will love it. Some people will be indifferent to it. It's just the world. But you just sow the truth. And God does what God does with the truth, the Lord has left nothing undone in order for us to be His witnesses. He's given us the Spirit. You see there in verse 27, He says, you will bear witness. It's not maybe you will or, you know, if you do, He says, you will do it. If you're mine, you will do it. You will do it. It's what disciples do. It's what real Christians do. If you're mine, you will do it. <laughs> so I'll just ask you, 
Are you His witness in the world? God has given us this gift. Again, a gift no man would ask for. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. I was listening to MacArthur preach on this text this week. and You know, the Holy Spirit's probably the most blasphemed member of the Trinity. God has given you the Spirit. Have you thanked Him? And are you employing the power He's given you. Listen, there's no, it's an oxymoron to say, I'm a born-again believer and I have no power. That's blasphemy. You have the third member of the Trinity in you. What does Paul say? We can do almost everything through Christ who strengthens... No! What does he say? You can do it all! You can do all the good works, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God has prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. You can do them. Why? Because you got such great faith? No, because the Holy Spirit resides in you. Because the very power of God resides in you, beloved. We can be what God has called us to be. You know, we talked a lot about, uh, back in verse 8 of chapter 15, we talked a lot about that verse. You know, it's almost like, for me, it was almost like the core verse. By this my Father is glorified. By what? That you bear much fruit. That's your job. Go bear fruit. Go sow the seed. Prove to be my disciples. John 15, 8. We we touched on verse uh, 1 of chapter 16 last week. These things Jesus says, I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. He's been telling them that it's going to get hard. He's about to be taken away. He's telling them these things so they won't uh, be in a panic. Although we see them in a panic within just a few hours, right? When they come to get Jesus, these guys are gone, right? These guys sprint. They abandon Christ with you know, all the speed they can conjure up, they sprint away from Him. And He's telling them it's going to be hard, but He's saying, I'm saying this to you now. I'm forewarning you that you'll be forearmed in the future. It's going to be hard to go with Me. It's going to be hard to be one of Mine. It will be costly, but I'm warning you, don't stumble. I want to just share with you 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-10. through 10. Listen to this warning God gives us uh, through the pen of Peter. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist the devil. Uh, be firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Paul, he really gives us a, a true uh, disciple's perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18. What does he say? You guys know this famous verse, for momentary light affliction is what? Working what? An eternal weight of glory. Right? <laughs> it's the Word of God. 
You say, Jim, it costs too much to be vocal in the world. You've not believed the promises. Hey, I know, it's, I know it costs. I know it costs. I know it does. But Paul says, these momentary light afflictions are producing an eternal weight of glory. What have you decided? I want the... I want the, the, the riches of the world or I want God's riches for eternity. What have you decided? You know, we talked a lot about it Wednesday night at the Young Adults group. It's like, it's, it's your decision, man. You know, God says, here I am. <laughs> what do you want? You want me? Or do you want the world? It's your call. I love this about Christianity. You know, He doesn't talk down to us. He just says, hey, this is the truth. What do you want? I love this about the Word of God. What do you want? So Jesus says, don't stumble over the trial and over the hatred and over the persecution. I don't want you to stumble. I want you to remember I told you that it would be like this. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 16. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that they are, they are offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. So, those of you who know your Bibles, Jesus is saying you're going to be unsynagogued. Those of you who know a little bit about Jewish culture, this is the worst possible thing that can happen. You are now culturally, politically, financially, socially a leper. Effectively, you're a leper. Effectively, you're no longer Jewish. You are an outcast. No one will do business with you. No one will associate with you. You cannot come into the synagogue. You're effectively a leper in every sense of the word, except for having the physical disease. Jesus says you will not only be excommunicated, some of you will be executed. Religious men will kill God incarnate. We, we've talked about this many times. If you know your Bibles, you know this is what happened. Religious men were behind the murder of Christ. These religious Jews, these religious leaders were behind the murder of Christ. And Jesus says they'll do the same to you. So why do religious men commit murder? He says right here, verse 3, they don't know me. They don't know God, they don't know the Father, and they don't know me. So, read your history, right? Godless religion is a deadly reality. The Jews killed Jesus and some of the disciples because they thought they were doing service for God. Same thing for the Roman Empire. You know, they had, they, they had multiple gods. They killed Christians in the name of their gods. Because they offended, Christians offended their gods. They wouldn't worship all these gods. So the Romans killed Christians in the name of religion. The Catholics killed the true Christians in the name of religion. For a thousand, for a thousand years. Today, uh, Muslims will kill Christians in the name of religion. It's always been like this. This is what men do. This is what religious men do. They don't know God. 
And so they can be prompted and motivated to every conceivable wickedness. Jesus says, this will happen to you. It will happen to you. It's what He tells His men. Verse 4, But these things I have spoken to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to Him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Again, Jesus is forewarning them. He's saying it's going to look like everything is lost. You know, these guys invested years in Christ, right? And they thought He was the Messiah. But they had this false view. They thought He was the the ultimate coming of Messiah. They had no sense that this was the first coming and that there would be a second one. They, they really thought they were in the inner circle, right? And Jesus was going to banish the Romans and establish Jerusalem as the capital of the world, and they were going to be power brokers in all of this, right? This is what they believed was true. But Jesus says, no, it's not going to be like that. It's not like that. He says, it's going to be hard. And you're going to be sorrowful. It's what the Word tells us. But isn't this a beautiful thing? (laughs) This is true for you and me on a daily basis. He's doing something bigger than they can understand just now. Right? You know, when it gets hard for you, you know that If you belong to Him, that's what's happening. That's what's going on. He's doing something I can't understand right now. And you trust Him with it, right? (laughs) You trust Him with it. It's what real believers do. It's what they do. Yeah, Christians cry. We've been talking about it the last few weeks. But our God is still God. And He's doing a good thing. Verse 7 here. John 16, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So the disciples are sorrowful, but what does Jesus say? What does He say? This is for your good. Why is it for their good that He goes away? I mean, yeah, this is not rocket science, right? He's going to go save their souls. He's going to go save them from eternal damnation. That's what He's going to do. He's going to go do that. He's all in. He's all in with His people. Oh, then the Holy Spirit's going to come and indwell you and empower you, right? Listen, I know we've talked about this a lot, but you've got to get some sense of how committed God is to you. I I tell you, if you get some sense of how committed God is to you, you won't be afraid in the world. I'm not saying you won't ever be afraid again because fear always comes up on us. But what you have to do is, you know, get that theology in your heart and your mind and preach yourself out of the fear and be who you're supposed to be. Be who you're supposed to be. Be who God has called you to be in 
the world. And I know I mention the, the verse all the time, but it's just true. It's Romans 8.28. God causes almost everything to work together for good to those who love Him, those called according to His purpose, right? Did I get it right? No, He says, inexplicably, He says, everything works for the good of those who are in Christ. Everything. Even this tragedy, these, these 11 guys are going to experience this huge tragedy with just within hours. Jesus says, I'm doing an awesome thing. You can't even begin to understand. Listen, what I want to say to you, when, it gets, when you can't cry anymore, that when that day comes, and you belong to Jesus Christ, remember this text, right? Remember this text. He's doing something you can't begin to understand. Now, I'm an old man. Some of you have never had one of those nights where you can't cry anymore. I've had a couple of them. And I'm just giving you testimony. God comes. God comes and God makes sense of it. And God is enough. Even if God doesn't make sense of it, God is enough. Even if you still can't see all the ramifications of what God is doing in your life, it doesn't really matter. We're not called to understand. We're called to believe. We're called to believe. This is fundamental, basic, elementary Christianity. Romans 8.28 is true every single day. And on their worst day, and these 11 guys were about to experience their very worst day, God was doing an amazing thing they could not begin to understand. And the same is true in your life. One theologian one time, I heard him say, and I never forgot it, he said, most Christians act like pagans in a crisis. <laughs> right? We just act like the world. We just, we're, we're full of fear and anxiety and concern and hopelessness and despondency. That's how pagans act in a crisis, right? Not how adopted sons and daughters of the king should respond. It's kind of like... it's. It's not even backhanded blasphemy. It's just blasphemy to say I'm a Christian and just be undone by some worldly trial. And just be completely exasperated and undone. It's just blasphemy. It's actually saying I don't believe He's a competent God. I don't believe that what He's doing in my life right now, you know, He should be doing. He's incompetent. Or he, He's not a promise keeper. He's not keeping His promise to me. Listen, if you ever think God is not keeping His promise to you, you've misunderstood what the promise is. Okay? <laughs> you've misunderstood what the promise was. God always keeps His promises. Every single one of them. So Jesus tells his guys, man, this is going to work to your advantage. And he zeroes in on the advantage of the Holy Spirit. He says, if I go away, the Helper will come. And in about 45 days, God's going to blow these guys' heart up again. You know, this is another divine uh, intervention. In about 45 days on Pentecost, here comes the Holy Spirit. And everything changes. Right? Everything changes for these guys. Another divine earthquake. All you had to do is look at Peter's life, right? Peter's a perfect example. Just a microcosm here. The night Jesus was arrested, you remember the little girl at the fire accused Peter of being one of the disciples. And remember what Peter did. You know what he did. 
He cursed and said, no, three times. He denied Christ three times. Well, what happened after Pentecost? What happened after Pentecost? You know, he was arrested for preaching Christ. The religious leaders you con condemned him and said, don't preach Christ anymore. We warn you under penalty. And he said, you think I'm going to listen to you, man? He says, actually what he said was a little more respectful. <laughs> he said, should I listen to God or to you? Should I do what God's called me to do or should I do what you tell me to do? He said, I must obey God rather than man. Those are the words of a man who's no longer chasing lies. He's no longer running around in a circle for no good reason like those dogs on the dog track. And I'll just say to you, some of you, you're just running around in a circle like those dogs on a dog track and you're chasing a lie. And God loves you enough to talk to you like an adult and get you off the lie, so it's your call. Do you want to come off the lie? It's your call. Do you want to come off the lie tonight? It's your call. You can. In Christ, you can. You can come off the lie. You can do that. Verses 8-11. through 11. And He, when He comes, He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe Me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold Me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. This Greek word here translated convict, it's a legal term. It simply means to expose the truth and to bring it to light. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He exposes the truth. And he brings it to light. Uh, I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here uh, of this verse. He says, When the Holy Spirit comes, He'll expose the error of the godless worldview of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We talked last week about the world system that Satan controls that hates God and is in rebellion against God. We talked a lot about that last week. You can check out the sermon on the podcast site if you want to revisit that. So what is this erroneous view the world has of sin? We've talked about it the last few weeks to some degree or another. You know, you've got, you've got, you've got psychologists and psychiatrists actually saying, not only you know, denouncing the concept of sin, but saying it's harmful because it harms it harms the man or woman's self-esteem. That this is a harmful concept, that it should be banished from the, the lexicon, right? We don't need to talk about sin. You know, again, we touched on it a week or so ago. You know, mankind has repackaged and redefined and refurbished and rationalized what sin is. You know what sin is. You're a Christian, right? At least you profess to be one, most of you, if not all of you. What is sin ultimately? Yeah, it's your will over God's. It's your will over God's. It's your sovereignty. It's you living out your sovereignty before the sovereign one. I don't care what God says. I really don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's sin. 
That's sin, beloved. And you're not sinning against the church. You're not sinning against me, the pastor. You're not sinning against you know, your mom, your dad, your family, your kids. You're sinning against God. This is against God. It's personal. Sin is personal. It's against God. It's against God. You know, some people have this uh, infantile notion that, well, it's just, you know, it's just kind of wrong and maybe I shouldn't do it. It's against God! That's why you shouldn't do it! It's against God. It's one reason God hates Sin. You know, you, you go to false churches, pseudo-Christian churches, and you know, they make every attempt to, to kind of you know, just remove sin from the equation. We don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. They'll ne- they may never come back. <laughs> it's pathetic. It is pathetic. A.W. Pink, 20th century theologian, says the vast majority of professing, professing Christians see God very much like an indulgent grandfatherly figure who, will, who while not approving of their indiscretions, leniently winks at them. This is not the God of the Bible. God hates sin. He says it many, many times in the Bible. God hates sin. It's personal. It's between you and Him. That's what it is, beloved. That's how you have to see it. That's how you have to understand it. It's conscious rebellion against God. You know what David says in Psalm 51.4 in his great confession, right? What did he say? He said, against you, you only have I sinned. David understood that his adultery and murder and scheming was, you know, it wasn't just about him and Bathsheba and, and uh, Bathsheba's husband. It wasn't just about that. It was about God. You know, if you don't hear me say anything else, I hope you understand tonight that your sin is about God. It's about God. If you think it's, if you think it's about anything less than that, you've not understood. You've not understood what David has said to us here. God is the one you violated. David knew that God was the one he had violated over Bathsheba, and I think her husband's name was Uriah. I'm not sure. God had been violated. Beloved, we need to to understand this. This needs to be part of our everyday theology bouncing around in my head and my heart. I don't want to violate God. I don't want to violate God in my sin. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's convicting men of their sin. He's teaching men. This is what He teaches the true believer. My sin is against my God. This is not some indiscretion or piccadillo or affair or you know an alternate lifestyle. This is my sin against my Creator. This is what the Holy Spirit does. <laughs> he teaches us what is up and what is down. Verse 9, Jesus expounds on this. The reason sin is against God and God only uh, is because the root of all sin at its core is a personal rejection of God. And so the root sin here against God is unbelief. It's what Jesus refers to. Because they did not believe in Me. In effect, you know, I reject, 
I reject what God has said. I'm a little sovereign. I do whatever I want. Whatever I think's best, that's what I do. I'm a little sovereign. I will have no God over me. I will have no God over me. The true believer understands this because the Holy Spirit teaches us, teaches it to us. And again, when I talk about belief, it's not just assenting to facts. I don't think I have to say this because I say it a lot. It's not just simply believing facts. It's being changed by the power of the Spirit of God. If you're proactively loving, trusting, honoring, obeying, and worshiping Jesus Christ in your life, then you are believing in a biblical sense and you can thank God for the gift of repentance, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and the gift of faith, Ephesians 2 verse 8. So verse 10, Jesus also says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. And the Holy Spirit does this in connection with Jesus returning to the Father. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is the standard of righteousness is what it means. He's going to burst out of the grave He's going to ascend to the Father. He's going to be seated at the right hand of God. He's the standard of righteousness. It's not the world's standard. It's not, you know, some pseudo-church standard. It's not the culture's standard. It's Jesus is the standard. The Holy Spirit brings this truth home into the heart. Jesus Christ is my standard. He's my only standard. His Word is my standard, not what Oprah says. Right? Not what Joel Osteen says. Not even what Jim Albright says. I'm your pastor, but I tell you all the time, you don't believe it because I say it. You believe it because you believe it's coming out of the Bible and you can see it. But you dare believe anything I say just because I say it. God is the standard. So the Holy Spirit is doing... His intervention in our lives. And He's teaching us about sin and righteousness, which is the holiness of God. You remember Isaiah 6. You remember Isaiah saw God high and lifted up. And he pronounced his own you know, ruin. He said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm exposed. I'm doomed. There's a holiness about God. And we understand we are not holy. He's holy. We're not holy. We have a huge problem. What's the answer? Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts us that this is true. We must have Jesus. We must have Christ. Verse 11, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. We talked a lot about it the last few weeks. Jesus is referring to Satan. Satan has been irrevocably judged. And all the, those who love the world will follow Him into that judgment. So as we have made our way through the Gospel of John and continue to do so, we Continue to see there's no middle place with God. You know Him or you don't. You love Him or you don't. You worship Him or you don't. There's no middle place. And I've been doing this for a long time and I've met a lot of professing Christians who seem to believe there's some kind of middle place. There is no middle place. We've either given ourselves away to Him or we have not. So very quickly, 
Revelation 6, 16 to 17. God's judgment is coming. And it will be so fearsome that men will cry out to the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from the angry Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb. I'm working on a project right now. It'd be interesting to see how many of you would guess how many times the word wrath in reference to God appears in Scripture. 125 times. God does not hide the fact that He hates sin. And He will judge it. You guys know Romans 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not, not knowing that the kindness of God is leading you to repentance? You know, if, you're getting, if you draw one more breath, if your brain fires one more time, this is the kindness of God. This is the kindness of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to convict men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then you know how Paul finishes Romans 2.5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Do you want justice? Do you want God to render to you according to your deeds? Do you want justice from God? You do not want justice from God. What do you want from God? Grace. You desperately need grace. Just as I do. So God in His kindness and forbearance and patience, He has staged an intervention. The Holy Spirit lovingly comes to us and He says, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. Your sin is against God. You must have a Savior. The Holy Spirit lovingly comes to us and He says, God is holy. You're not. You must have a Savior. The Holy Spirit lovingly comes to us and He says, God's judgment is real and it's coming. You must have a Savior. This is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And as I said to you earlier, the decision is yours. It's yours. Do you want God? Do you want to walk with God? I'll close with this. Isaiah 65.1 One of my favorite verses. God says, here I am. Why then should you die? I love it that God talks to us as adults. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He's not trying to spin it. He's not trying to market it. He says, this is the truth. What do you want? It's up to you. Do you want the world and the things of the world? Or do you want me? And if you want me, you can have me. For the next billion eternities, you can have me. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You. We praise You. Thank You for this Word. Thank You for this astonishing promise. The second member of the Trinity is going to the cross for us in the Gospel. And the third member of the Trinity is coming to indwell us. Lord, forgive us when we live this small and when we rationalize our sin. For Father, we clearly understand from the Word that our sin is against You. It is a violation against You. As our famous Hebrew brother has told us, So Lord, I pray that each man, woman, boy, and girl in this building would be receiving the convicting Spirit of Your Holy Spirit. That we would understand the truth about sin.
about righteousness, and about judgment. We thank You, Father. We thank You for Your faithful testimony to us. We thank You for Your loving kindness and Your mercy and Your forbearance. Maybe some of us in this room have been loving the world and the things of the world. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would convict us that we wouldn't waste any more time with that lie, that we won't run in circles for no good reason anymore. Thank you for the intervention. We love you and praise you. We pray this in the matchless and wonderful and beautiful and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and I'll uh, close this with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Have a great week. God bless. Hope to see you next time.